Good morning. The scripture reading for today comes from Ruth 3 and can be found on page 6 of your bulletins. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz your relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drank, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garments you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you, Ariel. We got a peanut gallery over here. All right. Let's take a look, but let's first pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are coming, wanting to hear your voice, which you tell us we can hear because this is a living word, that your spirit can come and, and just bring alive straight into our souls these printed words the very words of God. So we pray that you come and give us all the help we need. We pray that you would help us see ourselves truly, that, we would help, uh, that you would help us to see one another truly, accurately, that you would help us to see you truly, that you would teach us to love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Paula and I, we recently celebrated our 10th anniversary. She gave me this look. She always wonders, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, she never knows when I'm going to mention her name. She gets a little nervous about that, right? Uh, yeah, praise God. Thank you. And this special occasion, uh, 10 years, 10-year anniversary, uh, recently had me remembering our first official date. Well, this is how it went. We had already been friends for several years, and so making that transition from uh, friendship to quote-unquote something more uh, was a little awkward. Well, one day I decided that it was time to tell Paula my feelings. It was that time. And so I called her and asked if she wanted to hang out later that evening. And I thought, I was pretty sure that I had clearly signaled that this was going to be a special night, a different night. But the first sign that I had failed in my communication was when she showed up at the Starbucks where we said we'd meet. And the first thing she said was, hey, hey, where's everyone else? Right, all, all, all our other friends, right? Well, we decided to take a walk outside to sort of stroll around while talking. And personally, I thought it was, you know, pretty romantic. It was my choice to do that walk-in after all. But years later, Paula commented, oh my gosh, how many miles were we walking? <laughs> and was it uphill the entire way, right? Hardly a romantic Stroll for her. Well, finally, I mustered up the courage to share my heart with her. And truth is, I'd screwed up so many other relationships prior to this one that I was, I was glad, even proud for how honest I was and how clearly I had spelled out my intentions until the first words out of Paula's mouth after my grand speech were, wait, so what are we doing? You know, 13 years later, you know, not, not much has changed, right? <laughs> it's safe to say that Ruth and Boaz's relationship got off to a better start than ours. You might not know these characters, especially if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, but here's Ruth. Ruth was a widow. As we learned in chapter 1, she lost her husband tragically. But instead of staying in Moab, where she was originally from, Ruth chose to move to Bethlehem to take care of Naomi. Naomi was her mother-in-law. Naomi's husband, along with her two sons, had also died. Ruth stayed with Naomi. It was one of the great acts of self-sacrificial, loyal love in all the Bible. Ruth gave up her comfort, her future, her security for the sake of Naomi's. In chapter 2, which we looked at last week, while working in one of his fields, Ruth found favor in the eyes of a prominent man in town. His name was Boaz. Not only does Boaz go out of his way to protect Ruth from harm, she later discovers that Boaz was a member of Naomi's husband's family, which meant that he could serve as their guardian redeemer. Well, what's that? 
In Israel, the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer was a male relative who could help protect the legal and the financial interests of someone who had fallen on hard times or someone who had died. In one of his most important roles, the guardian redeemer could even marry a childless widow of his close relative in order to help father a legal heir, a son. Naomi was past the age of being able to bear another child, but Ruth wasn't. And so the one dramatic question that remained in this story was, would their guardian redeemer take up his family responsibility and marry her? Of course, all of this just sounds a little strange, doesn't it, to our modern ears? But in reality, in that original context, it was Naomi's and Ruth's best path to a more secure future. After all, as you may know, in the ancient world in which they lived, to be husbandless and childless was to be very vulnerable, not only physically and emotionally, but also legally and financially. And that's the backdrop to today's passage, Ruth chapter 3. It opens with the loving mother-in-law, Naomi, coming up with a, a plan for Ruth to advance her relationship with Boaz. My daughter, she says, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. In verse 1. Oh, what was the plan? Ruth would wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in her best clothes. She, she was getting ready for a date. Actually, more than a date, she's dressed almost like a bride. Later that evening, she would secretly go down to the threshing floor. That's this large open space east of the town where Boaz would be winnowing barley, separating the husks from the grain. Once he lay down to sleep, Ruth would uncover his feet which simply meant she would fold back the, the corner of his long tunic. That would expose his feet to the chilly air, which would help to wake him up. Ruth would lie down next to his feet, and when he would in due time wake up in the middle of the night, they'd be able to have a conversation about the possibilities of marriage. And so what's this story all about? What does it boil down to? It's about vulnerability. It's about risk-taking love. And I'll return to that theme in a little bit. But first I want to spend a little bit of time on another unmistakable theme in this story. And that's romance. You can't miss it, can you? The story builds with emotional intensity. They're having a DTR, aren't they? Defining the relationship. They're talking about marriage. There's sexual tension here, too. I mean, for goodness sakes, a couple is lying next to each other in the dark. You've got a pair of naked feet. It all feels a bit scandalous. And you know what? The way the story is told, the Bible blesses it all. 
The Christian Bible doesn't hesitate to celebrate romantic love. After all, God created it. He gave the exchange of romantic love as a gift. More than that, when God talks about his commitment to sinful people like us, he likens himself to a what? A lover. To a groom in pursuit of his bride. He even describes his relationship to his people as a marriage. So don't look down on it or mock it or even over-spiritualize it. God loves romantic love. And that's demonstrated clearly in this passage. So I want to talk about that a little bit, and specifically what I want to do is to talk about one aspect of romantic love and romance, and that's dating. We don't get a lot of chances to talk about that here in the space. We haven't much over time, but it's important, isn't it? How do you do it? Ruth and Boaz didn't date the way that people date today, but we can draw out some important principles about how to conduct ourselves in these relationships. You can call it dating. You can call it courtship. I'm referring to a romantic relationship prior to marriage. Of course, not all of you are single. Some of you are married. Some of you don't care to date or get married. I get it. But I think these principles that apply here can apply directly or indirectly to all kinds of relationships. I think there's something here for all of us if we're listening closely. So let's take a quick look together. Five lessons about dating that we learn from Ruth and Boaz. Five lessons. Number one, Jesus is your boyfriend. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> he, he, he's not. We're not going there, all right? Number one. <laughs> Someone was about to leave. Number one. Number one, number one, be clear about your intentions. Number one, be clear about your intentions. Ruth is very direct, isn't she? See, when Boaz wakes up in verse 9 and asks, who are you? She responds, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. See, immediately... She asks Boaz to serve as guardian redeemer. Immediately, she raises the question of marriage. Spread the corner of your garment was language that was used in that time basically as a marriage proposal. As one commentary, commentator explains, Ruth makes sure that her intentions are crystal clear. And Boaz is no different. Notice how he responds to Ruth's invitation in verse 11. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. He's also very honest and upfront. See, he explains in verse 12 that actually, maybe disappointingly, there's another relative who's even closer in kinship than Nao to, to Naomi than Boaz is. There's another guy out there who kind of has a first obligation or duty to Naomi and Ruth. And this other guy, therefore, gets to decide first whether to marry Ruth and take up his duty as guardian redeemer. So Boaz doesn't just get swept up by his emotions and doesn't make false promises. He lays out a plan. He's going to take action the next morning. 
right away. But he does make a promise to Ruth at the end of verse 13. If the other guy is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Boaz removes any ambiguity in this situation as an act of love. The practical point here for our relationships is is, is not that you need to bring up the topic of marriage on your first date. But what it does mean is that we should be clear and upfront about our intentions as a matter of integrity. I don't know about you, but sadly, one of the marks of my past relationships was a sort of semi-intentional ambiguity. You know, are we an item or not? Are we in? Whoop, whoop, I guess we are, right? It's actually, if we're honest with ourselves, a form of self-centeredness. Keeping my options open. Enjoying the privileges of a romantic relationship without any of the commitment or accountability of a real one. And some of you today, let's be frank, may need to repent of your selfishness. Make some changes. State your intentions clearly very soon. Of course, all of this relates to nurturing this, these relationships with marriage somewhere in view. You, you need to be heading somewhere. Uh, things always go sideways when we turn relationships into a form of recreation. Be clear. Remove ambiguity. Have those awkward conversations. And yes, they are awkward. Sign up for them. Resist making false promises. But make clear commitments whenever you can. Be clear about your intentions, number one. Number two, protect each other's honor. Protect each other's honor. I know that sounds a little bit Victorian, but let me explain. Ruth seeks out Boaz, and she all but basically asks him to marry her. But here's the thing. Normally in the ancient world, she wouldn't have done that. That would have been the role of her father. He would have served As this go-between approached a prospective husband on her behalf in part to protect her. But Ruth doesn't have that. Remember, she's all alone. Widowed and far from home. So how would she advocate for herself in this situation? Men and women didn't have private conversations in that ancient culture. But if she spoke to Boaz in public and he rejected her, she would have been publicly shamed. And so this whole plan to find Boaz in the middle of the night, though admittedly unusual, was actually absolutely the best way, maybe the only way, for Ruth to seek the care and the protection of Boaz. It was the best way to protect Ruth's honor and reputation, and to protect her from further pain. 
Notice how even as they talk, Boaz tells her to lie here until morning in verse 13 to keep her from being harmed walking home in the middle of the night. And in verse 14, he tells Ruth, we're told that Ruth got up before anyone could be recognized. And Boaz said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's not just protecting his own reputation, he's protecting her. And so I just leave you with two simple questions to move through this point fairly quickly. First, what might it look like for you to protect your significant other from getting hurt unnecessarily? What do you need to do? What do you need to not do? And secondly, what might it look like for you to uphold their public reputation in the community? Protect each other's honor. Thirdly, character is queen. Character is queen. I mean, you know, right? What was it that drew, that attracted Ruth to Boaz? What was it that attracted Boaz to Ruth? Well, he tells us it was her kindness, verse 10. In verse 11, he says, all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character. That's the same phrase that Proverbs 31 famously uses to describe a wise and godly woman. Boaz's character, his shines as well. Last Sunday, we saw in chapter 2 how Boaz was protective, but without being patronizing to Ruth. He was sacrificial and giving. In today's passage, we've already talked about his integrity, seen in his clearly stated intentions. He's also generous. At the end of the passage, Boaz, he sends Ruth home with six measures of barley. He tells Ruth, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You see, he's not just after romance with Ruth. He's showing his commitment to care for Naomi practically, too. I mean, if you haven't noticed, this guy is a stud. He really is. Listen, when you are considering dating somebody or advancing your relationship, when you're considering marrying somebody, the most important, the most important thing for you to notice is the other person's character. Are they basically a humble person, or are they always sort of talking about themselves? Are they generous in, in giving? Is, is sacrifice something that they naturally do, or are they basically selfish? Keep a tight grip on themselves, their stuff, their time, their space. Can they say sorry when they screw up, or are they always defensive, never able to say they're wrong? Can they be a good friend? See, character is more important even than compatibility. You can grow, you can build compatibility. In fact, compatibility is oftentimes something that's aided by good character, humility, the ability to put another person first, getting along because you love, not naturally because you fit, but because you care because you sacrifice, because you're committed, those are issues of character. 
It's more important than a person's class or career. Those things can disappear or change in a second. And character is more important than good looks. I mean, let me just be blunt. A lot of you are passing up some incredible women and men that are right around you in life, in pew, and in community. People who are mature in their faith and who have exemplary Jesus-like character. They're right in front of your eyes, but you don't know how to prioritize character like Ruth and Boaz. Because we're always looking for what pleases the eye. We're only drawn to what we might define, sometimes unbiblically, as what's attractive to ourselves. And of course, physical attraction matters. It's important for Christians not to over-spiritualize that in an unhealthy way. I don't, I don't care at all about how he looks. No, it's not that. But here's the point. Your significant other will most be defined in your relationship by who they are on the inside. And in the long run, that's what bears the most fruit. That's what's most defining to your relationship. And here's another tip. You might be hopeful about that person's prospect to grow and change, and we should have hope. But listen to this. Your significant other will never be what he or she is not already becoming. You don't need a perfect person now, but the trajectory and the pattern of their growth absolutely matters. Are they showing signs of growing in humility? Are they showing signs of loyalty and friendship? Are they showing signs at least of being hungry before their inability to be a good friend or a sacrificial or generous person? Are they wanting to grow in repentance and in character? Dear friends, character is queen. Fourthly, and quickly, guard against unhealthy forms of sexual intimacy. Those overtones are all over the passage. It's impossible to not address it as one part of the relationship that Ruth and Boaz share. As I mentioned here, it's easy sometimes to misunderstand all that's going here. But given the unusual circumstances... That Ruth had really no other recourse, no other way in which she can advocate for herself. Where she could discover and draw in her guardian redeemer. Where she could initiate this marriage relationship. All things considered, you see this couple acting with utmost integrity in the way that they are interacting. In the way in which they are again and again by the narrator, blessed rather than critiqued or condemned for their actions. The way in which uh, Ruth, for example, is laying at Boaz's feet, where she is invited to stay for the night, but simply out of protection for her physical well-being. Where she is uh, turned out in the morning, but before anyone sees, but again, primarily to protect her reputation. 
in every way, the Bible and the Old Testament has no problem at all in pointing out any sexual indiscretions, and we don't find that anywhere here in this passage. This matters. It's easy to get sloppy in this realm. I confess I have myself in past relationships, too. But this is one of those areas of this growing dating relationship that you might already be in or hope to be in that is really important to uphold the holistic integrity of, to maintain a healthy relationship. Not as the only thing or not as the most important thing, but rather as something that grows in the direction of what our sexual intimacy was originally intended for. And that is the enjoyment of one another in full marital oneness as every part of life, emotional, legally, financially, sexually, in every way is brought together in total vulnerability and mutuality. We often feel like these are random rules that the Bible has not to engage in sexual intimacy before the context of marriage. But Christian author Phil Yancey writes very helpfully about sex from a biblical perspective. He reminds us of this. Let me quote extensively here. Confining sex to marriage may create an environment of safety, of intimacy, and trust where the true meaning of sex may at times break through. Marriage provides the security that we need to experience sex without restraint, apart from guilt, danger, or deceit. Teenagers worry that they may miss out on something if they heed the Bible's warnings about premarital sex. Actually, the warnings are there to keep them from missing out on something. Because fidelity sets a boundary in which sex can run free. And so it's worth giving ourselves a heads up. Even as 1 Corinthians says through the Apostle Paul, flee from sexual immorality. At times, according to the wisdom of one Christian thinker and author, if you don't feel a little bit like a fundamentalist, you may not be following Jesus. There are ways in which we must uphold these biblical standards of sexual integrity, and we must do that for each other as an act of love in caring for one another, again, in protecting one another's souls. Of course, this intimacy extends beyond just sexual boundaries, but emotional boundaries as well. Will you guard one another in that way too? As Song of Solomon 2.7 says, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Shall we care for each other enough not to lead someone on or to drag them through an emotional ditch? Will we be circumspect and caring, prudent, wise in the way that we develop the relationship? Even willing to step back when necessary as an act of love and an act of honor and an act of self-sacrificing care. Guard against these forms of unhealth. And fifthly and lastly, trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. 
Because it's clear that for many, many people, God's timing just doesn't feel right. In fact, you yourself might be someone that's absolutely seeking to be in some sort of a dating relationship. You long for that. Not just romance itself, but maybe you seek to be in a long-term committed relationship even in marriage. But so many things are beyond our control. I know it can get discouraging. More than that, it can even be damaging, hurtful. The way in which many people can feel uh, looked past or even forgotten by God. Uh, You've been praying, perhaps. You've been even laboring and being intentional in your relationships, and yet things haven't materialized. And maybe you're losing hope. Dear friends, we love you. So many people in this room have gone through that as well and continue to go through that struggle with you. This passage is a story about God's providence. On the one hand, it does tell us and remind us that you just never know God can provide in our relationships, though sometimes unexpectedly. You know, by the world's standards, Ruth was not the most eligible bachelorette in that land, given all of her background. And by Boaz's own admission, he was out of his league. You just never know, would never have actually imagined up this match with human eyes alone. And in fact, don't miss the fact in the wider context that all of this only happened after intense suffering and loss. God's providence may in fact provide, maybe later than you wish, and maybe in unexpected ways that you can't have foreseen. But sometimes he does provide. But even when he doesn't, Isn't this a story that reminds us again and again, even in our lack and in our loss, God is always with us, filling our hearts, meeting our needs. You see, if you read through the story of Ruth, even though in the end Ruth and Boaz do come together, the story easily could have ended in chapter 1 with an understanding of Ruth committing herself fully to Naomi with no change in her future in sight, but fully content with having God by her side. I do not say that flippantly at all. There's a depth of faith and of hope and of trust that was forged in the soul of this woman. Sometimes God does provide in relationships. Sometimes God provided Apart from relationships, in every case, God provides with himself. Trust, dear friends, in God's sure providence. You might notice the story, it ends with a note of uncertainty. They're waiting, literally. Not sure what's going to come of this other person that's in the picture. Will he pick up on his duty? Which would be wonderful, of course, but that would sort of sideline Boaz, the one whom Ruth has gradually fallen in love with. Things aren't clear for Naomi. What would her future be like? Boaz has put his heart and himself out on the line. Ruth has sort of risked everything, made herself vulnerable. What 
will happen next. You'll have to come back in two weeks, of course, to find out more. But for now, we understand this, that right at the heart of this story, right at the center of it all, is not only deep vulnerability, every person in this story exposed in some way, but also a willingness to press into that vulnerability and love anyway. You see, what is this story about? It's about a love that takes risks. A love that puts everything on the line as Ruth herself places her in a self in a situation of extreme vulnerability in which she could be taken advantage of or in which she could suffer embarrassment or even loss. You understand, too, that Ruth is in this not just for herself, isn't she? Even this entire scene is framed as an act of love for who? Naomi. Why, after all, is Ruth talking to Boaz? Of course, her heart is attached towards him, but also because of her concern for Naomi's well-being. See, Ruth can take matters into her own, her own hands. Boaz even points it out. There are plenty of other younger men that she could turn to where she would find provision and protection. Why Boaz? Why these guardian redeemers? For Naomi's sake. Ruth is giving herself in this situation as an act of love for Naomi, even in vulnerability, even with all the risks involved, laying down even her honor, reputation at the feet of this man. What might risk-taking love look for us? What might it look like? Maybe it's the risk of pressing into a coworker who hasn't really worked with you well or loved you well, facing possible hurt or rejection. Maybe it's the risk of sort of uh, giving yourself to your spouse, of wanting to build that relationship even if he or she might reject your overtures of affection or commitment. Maybe it's the love that you want to extend to a neighbor or someone in the church who maybe is really different from you. You know, because we're all afraid of saying the wrong thing or putting our foot in our mouth, but love says it doesn't matter. That's the cost I'm willing to incur for the sake of love. You might be familiar with this well-known quote from C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, when he said this famously about love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. He explains love anything, a child, a, a neighbor, a sibling, a friend, a golden retriever even. Love anything, and your heart will at some point be wrung and possibly broken. That the only way to keep ourselves from getting hurt is not to love at all. But Lewis also notes that if you choose this, your heart may not be broken if that's your goal, but it will also become unbreakable. You might not know loss, but neither will you know love. 
because to love at all is to be vulnerable. Which is, of course, the story of the love of the cross, which looms in the background of this entire story, even as we're called to love with a risk-taking love, the question arises, doesn't it? How do you do that? How can you do that? Well, you can and how? Because you've been loved like that. Because Jesus made himself vulnerable for you. He didn't just risk being vulnerable. The eternal one chose to be born into fragile humanity, born as a baby. He didn't just risk getting hurt. He chose to die for our sins, for all of our self-centeredness and our lovelessness. He didn't just risk being exposed. He was, in fact, stripped naked, tortured, and crucified on a Roman cross. He was exposed even to the very wrath of God, which we deserve for all of our sins as an act of risk-taking love for you and me, for our salvation, for our life. And when you get filled by that love, when your hearts, your souls get redefined by that kind of love, you've just got a little bit extra in your tank to also offer that very same risk-taking love. So this passage, of course, boils down to this. Whether in your relationships, dating, romantic, or otherwise, with your coworkers, with your friends, with your neighbors, and even with your enemies, dear friends, today, who are you afraid to love? Who have you been afraid to love? Are you willing to find the courage to take that risk? having been filled with the one who risked all and gave all to love all. Do you know that love? His name is Jesus. Let's pray. So we ask that you would come and change our hearts and teach us to love like you. Help us to see your love. Help us to receive your love. We pray in Christ's name. Let's all stand together. Let's sing.